Hey, cashiers. We Have the Receipts podcast is coming at you live from Netflix is a Joke Fest in Los Angeles. Chris, are you kidding? No, Netflix is a joke, Courtney, but this is not one of them. Our listeners in LA have the chance to join us for a live recording of our podcast, We Have the Receipts, hosted by me, Chris Burns. And me, Courtney Revolution. Join us and a few surprise guests from your favorite Netflix reality shows on Saturday, May 4th at 1 p.m. at a secret location in Hollywood. To be announced. Get your tickets for the We Have the Receipts live show at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. That's todoom, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash We Have the Receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at todoom.com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast from Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and I'll be hosting this week's episode. Here on You Can't Make This Up, we go behind the scenes of Netflix original true crime stories with special guests. This is the final episode of our mini series about The Innocence Files. This documentary series explores three major causes of wrongful convictions, and it was made in consultation with The Innocence Project. In this episode, I chat with Academy Award-winning director Alex Gibney. Alex's episodes focus on how individual prosecutors can corrupt the whole justice system. His episodes cover cases from Philadelphia, Houston, and Michigan. I'll be speaking with Alex about the racial tensions that come from, quote, tough-on-crime policies, the role of journalism in bringing the wrongly convicted to the public eye, and how some prosecutors are incentivized to break the law. There will be spoilers, so make sure you've watched the final three episodes of The Innocence Files. We also recorded this episode in our separate homes, so we appreciate you understanding the change in our normal audio quality. Now, here's my conversation with Alex. Well, I did want to ask you a couple things because things seem to be percolating in your case. What should people know about your case? I don't know if we have enough time for that one. <laughs> First of all, before all this happened to me, if someone would have said that this is possible, I, I never would have believed it. It's just almost 28 years of my life. I mean, this is more than half of my life. I don't have any animosity towards the police. I don't think every prosecutor's bad, you know, but I, I just think the ones that I ended up with, the tactics that they use, it was just arrest, convict, move on to the next. They were doing everything they could to, to close the case without trying to seek out the actual truth. I happened to be a, a casualty in the mix of it. So, Alex Gibney, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Delighted. So for this project, The Innocence Files, it takes a look at several aspects of dysfunction in the criminal justice system. And your episodes look at prosecutorial misconduct. Why this topic for you? I mean, I've done a lot of films about power and abuse of power. And so to do the story of prosecutorial misconduct seemed right up my alley. And it is one of the great sources of injustice in the criminal justice system. And so I was wildly enthusiastic about taking it on. I know a lot about the Chester Holman case. I actually worked on a podcast that covered the case. And what's really interesting about this case in episode seven is that you track the conviction integrity units, reinvestigation and petition process as it's happening. Can you just talk about that process as you were making this episode? Sure. I mean, I think that was one of the things that was most 
engaging for me, but also the scariest because we were tracking this case in real time. We didn't know how it was going to end up. We hoped that Chester would be released, but we didn't know for sure that it was going to happen. And certainly Chester had been down this road many times before. So to be able to embed to some extent with a conviction integrity unit was hugely beneficial because this was an eye opener for me. I didn't know that much about the CIU. You know, there are a number of them across the country, but particularly in Philadelphia, with the election of Larry Krasner as district attorney, you know, he really put in a strong conviction integrity unit. And the idea of prosecutors and defense attorneys working together to try to uncover the truth is really a, a novel concept and one which I was thrilled to try to film in real time. Well, it is a rare thing that politics intervenes in this way. You know, Larry Krasner ran on this platform of sort of fixing the criminal justice system in in Philadelphia. And that's a real conviction integrity unit there. There are other places in the country we should mention that set them up and they don't operate that way. You were with this unit and one of the most extraordinary scenes is when they do that ride along to sort of recreate the conditions of the night of the crime. Right. So wherever that cop is pulled over up there is probably where we were about to pull over. Yeah. So essentially, essentially coming back to the scene of the crime. Right. Yeah. This would be Van Pelt here. So we're, we're at eight minutes, essentially. I just don't think there's any way Chester can have committed the crime and been stopped where he was in the time period from the crime and the stop. Can you just talk about what it was like being with them while they were doing their work? I mean, it was so exhilarating in the sense that that is the moment. Like, we sat in on a number of meetings of the Conviction Integrity Unit itself. But that was in the prosecutor's office. Here's a case where Patricia Cummings, who was leading the Conviction Integrity Unit, and Alan Tauber, who was Chester Holman's defense attorney, were sitting side by side in the middle of the winter in a car, you know, literally tracing what was supposed to have been the getaway route of the car, you know, that was occupied by the alleged murderer. So that was really a fantastic moment. We embellished it later on with some aerials we shot after the fact. Some drone footage. <laughs> but, but being in the car um, or, or tagging along for that was really something. One of the things that's so interesting about Chester's case is the laser focus the police had on him and pretty much only him from minute one. But were you surprised in his case just how much evidence there was contradicting the theory that he could have done it? that for some reason investigators just chose to not look at? Well, we tried to construct the story as a murder mystery, but a murder mystery in reverse. That is to say, revealing over time how Chester didn't commit the murder and how somebody else likely did. But I think what really knocked me out was how little evidence there was to convict Chester at all. You know, pretty much the day after Chester's interrogated, the police pursue another lead, which was much more compelling. But by then, they had already committed to a lie and committed to forcing a witness to lie and, yeah. and also to writing in something on Chester's own you know, statement, which was false. So they were already building a case. And once they had committed to that lie, that was the big problem. Then they were no longer open to any other evidence 
um, that happen. And, and that was maybe the most interesting thing about Chester's case, because you get into the whole idea of how that original lie reverberates through the criminal justice system. And there was a lot of talk in the Philadelphia Inquirer of this process called testalying, where, you know, witnesses, in order to get more favorable treatment in their own cases, are coerced into lying uh, in order to be able to, con- to get a conviction. But then when they recant, they're considered an unreliable witness. Well, now that they're unreliable, the judge claims that he or she doesn't know whether to believe them the first time or the second time. So in the absence of any definitive other proof, they let the original ruling stand. Well, that's a terrifying idea if you think about it, because it means that police and prosecutors have an incentive to get witnesses to lie, knowing that if they recant later and tell the truth, they will never be believed. What a what a what a terrifying concept. This case in particular, you know, it's really hard because this is a subject that comes up a lot. And I've said this before and I think about it a lot in that in some sort of broken police units or prosecutorial units or segments of the criminal justice system, it does seem like there are you know, generally good people who are incentivized to do the wrong thing. I mean, where do you land on that? Is it, is it are you able in any way to look at this situation in Philadelphia and say, oh, this is just the way they did their job. They didn't mean to do harm. You know, nobody, unless you're in the mafia, nobody goes out and says to themselves, you know, my job is to do bad. So that's what I get paid for. And that's what I'm going to do. So in the case of, of the police, you know, Philadelphia was in the midst of a tremendous murder spree. There was violence all over the city. There were unsolved cases piling up. There was tremendous pressure to get something done, to be tough on crime. And I think there's a phrase called noble cause corruption, which is a police phrase. And it you know refers to dirty cops who believe that in the service of trying to get people they know to be really bad guys, like say a killer, they can't get them for the murder of somebody in the neighborhood. So what they do is they plant some drugs on them and they arrest them for that and they put them down for that. But over time, it leads to this belief that you know in your gut, right, that you've got the right person. I mean, they originally bring Chester in because they had an unbelievable match on the license plate of his car with uh, with the actual perp and YZA, the same three letters, same car. So but there was a reason for that, we no, should point out. there turned out to be a good reason for it. But at the time, you, you, you can understand why cops would have pulled him in. So they, in their gut, they feel, okay, we got the right guy, so we'll do whatever we need to do in order to make sure this guy gets put away and no namby-pamby liberal defense attorney is going to get him off. And they concoct something to um, make sure that he's convicted and convicted quickly on very little evidence. I mean, there was no um, physical evidence whatsoever in the case. It was just uh, two eyewitnesses. That was it. And then the kind of bold summation by Roger King, who was a noted African-American prosecutor who, um, you know, put a lot of black defendants behind bars. And he seemed to have a view that if you're caught, you're probably a bad guy. And and he would use his rhetorical skills to put these people away. But that's also a tactic that's used a lot in jury trials. I mean, you hear prosecutors, even on in fictional jury trials on TV, you hear them say, you know, it must have been if he's arrested, he must have been doing something, you know. And I do think that is something that citizens, because let's face it, 
a lot of people never have contact with the police in their entire life. That if there was contact with the police, there must be a reason, which isn't true, but that's something I think people believe. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about Roger King, his personality, the way he was viewed uh, in, in Philadelphia and in the courtroom. Roger King was a very charismatic character, and I know that. I mean, he had kind of the fire and brimstone approach of, a, of, a, of, a, of an old-time preacher. We actually were able to get footage of him kind of giving a, a, a facsimile of a, of a plea to a jury to execute somebody. You should look at him not in sorrow, but in scorn. And that scorn being, and you should stand up and look at him and look at him for the despicable human being that he is, the mad dog that he is, and say, for what you did, why you did it, how you did it, for what you did, you should die. And it's pretty compelling. I mean, this guy is really, you, you could see how in the courtroom he would be hugely convincing. Uh, he was big man, and he, you know, felt that he had justice on his side. And so if he had to bend the law to get there, he was going to do it. And he built up a rather enviable record of convictions. Now we know, and we're beginning to find out through the work of the Innocence Project, that there was a reason he was getting those convictions, which was because he was either helping to falsify evidence, coercing witnesses to a lie, a series of other things. They did an inventory, discover that a lot of his uh, convictions were were false. So there's there's something peculiar about Roger King. He, he was much admired when he died. the 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 obituaries of him were, you know, um, tremendous outpouring of grief and respect. But I think underlying that was a person who felt he had the right to take the law into his own hands. That he made decisions about when people were good or bad, what was right and wrong and didn't let the facts stand in the way of his gut. Hmm. It's it's more than just speeches in court and his persona. He's actually interfering with witnesses in in a way that, you know, if you heard about it in a different context, it would be an ins insanity, but apparently that was done with some regularity. Well, Deirdre Jones, the woman who testified against Chester at trial, you know, was threatened by them, and it was her fear that they were going to do something to her that led her to change her story. And then they sent her literally out of the city. They said it was for her protection, um, that Chester was going to come after her otherwise, and then only bring her back in order to be able to testify. So it was very much, you know, a coercive process. And the police were very much involved in that. Also, there's a record of Roger King working with certain detectives over and over and over again. And they had a kind of routine going on in terms of how they would get witnesses either to lie or to shade the truth in ways that resembled the narrative that they were building. And that was one of the most interesting things to me as a documentarian, which is you, you realize that over time, um, bad prosecutors, and when I say bad, I mean people who are corrupt and, and are not following the letter of the law, they're storytellers. And I'm a storyteller. But what you understand is that in court or along the way to court, you know, in terms of gathering the evidence and what you do or don't turn over to defense, it's trying to take a story that's very much in the gray and turning it into a story that's black and white so that everything is clear and certain. And it's that kind of disquieting certainty that the justice system wants to push. 
It's comforting in some ways because I think we as citizens all want to know we got the bad guy, we put the bad guy behind bars, you know, mission accomplished. But there's a reason there are terms like reasonable doubt, shadow of a doubt. Doubt turns out to be important. And I think we've gone overboard in terms of lionizing a kind of harsh certainty that comes of the need to tell a simple story to a jury in a way that ultimately becomes not the truth, but a lie. Right. And I think that also, given regular citizens who sit on juries, their proclivity to want to trust, you know, people who display an innate distrust of the system or the government don't get picked for the jury. They just don't. So and it's that same kind of hope in the system, I think, that makes people want to believe those stories. And also there's, you know, there were obviously during this period, a lot of accusations of racism in the system in, in, in the city of Philadelphia. That's where Roger King had this peculiar advantage because he was black. And, you know, and many of the people he was prosecuting were black. It was assumed that there was no racial intent or motive. And so he must have been ferreting out the truth. And I think that Roger King, in a way, saw himself as a character who was kind of uh, finding a way of taking the bad apples out of the African-American barrel. Mm. And, and in that way, he became an extremely dangerous character if you were uh, a black defendant going up against yeah. him. I mean, that that was sort of the era of the, you know, Bill Cosby proselytizing, pull your pants up, young men. It's really interesting that the, sort of the, the time periods and the regions you uh, look at in these three episodes. As a filmmaker who is known for making these like, transcendent, beautiful documentaries, how painful is it for you to have that little sideways iPhone video of Chester Holman getting out of prison in your documentary? Oh, my God. It was interesting the way the prison handled Chester's release because when he was finally exonerated, the prison moved very quickly with lightning speed because I think they didn't want a gaggle of cameras there. And we only got notice, I think, about two or three hours before Chester was going to be released. And all of us, you know, made out like bats out of hell to, in, in separate cars to try to get there at time. And my producer, who's magnificent on this film, Kevin Huffman, you know, got there with his camera. Uh, and was there when Chester got out. That is to say with his iPhone, because the camera crews hadn't arrived yet. And he got the perfect shot, the money shot, but they confiscated his phone and erased mm. the footage. But we did get f from somebody whose name and identity I won't reveal that sideways look at, at, at Chester <laughs> hugging Alan Tauber just after he gets out of the big gates. Um, well, moving on, you know, one other character who comes into play in, in a lot of these wrongful conviction cases. I don't want to say a lot because we hear the Innocence Project folks say over and over and over again that they only can do a tiny percentage of cases that come their way. They can actually take up for a variety of reasons. The same is true in a newsroom. I work in a newsroom by day. I know that we get tips. We get from citizens, from inmates, from all sorts of people all the time writing in. It's just, you, can, you can just sort of be deluged by stories of people saying I was wrong in one way or the other. But in episode eight, we have an instance of a journalist getting a tip like this and really working it in the case of Alfred Dwayne Brown. Um, he was convicted for capital murder in the killing of Houston police officer Charles Clark in another case that went wrong on m many levels. Can you just talk about sort of the role of journalism in, in the stories that are covered in your episodes? 
Sure. I mean, in Chester's case, there was the role of the Philadelphia Inquirer who did that wonderful takeout on Test the Lying that we profile. And in the case of Dwayne Brown, you know, there was Lisa. It's Lisa Falkenberg. That was not a film I directed. It was directed by the wonderful Andy Grieve, who's my longtime editor. So Lisa just found this case and really did believe in it and dug and dug and dug and did an extraordinary amount of work until she started embarrassing people. Um, and the next thing you know, defense attorneys start to take over. And uh, I think that it can't be said enough that the role of the press in terms of embarrassing public officials is potent and powerful. And at a time when the press is being demonized as enemies of the people, you can see in the hands of Lisa what dogged reporting and truth-telling can do in terms of righting a wrong. It was really interesting because Brown's case he also had an alibi. I mean, he called his girlfriend at a time when the murder was committed, so he couldn't have done it. And yet at the grand jury, people don't know how grand juries work. It's the prosecutor and a bunch of citizen jurors called in and jurors can ask questions, unlike in a, in a courtroom jury trial. But the prosecutor allowed this alibi witness to be badgered and harassed by the grand jury. That was shocking to me. Badgered and harassed by the grand jury and, and really threatened. Um, by the prosecutors so that she was terrified that if she was going to end up going to prison for perjury and, and who's going to take care of her kid. And so they had a way of making her toe the line. I mean, it was rough justice in the, in the, in the most terrible sense. That was a big get for Andy and his team to be able to get her um, the girlfriend to come forward and, and, and talk about what happened. It was, it was really chilling. It was chilling. I mean, she was actually put in jail for a period of time. There were cops on the grand jury. I mean, the the idea that this would be practice, which it turns out it was regular practice in this county in Texas, is astonishing. I mean, there are checks and balances to be able to manage these things, but not for the poor. You know, you can't hire a high-powered attorney to help represent you. You, you. you don't really know what your rights are, and you can't afford to enforce them. So, you know, particularly, and, and, and this was the case in the Chester Holman case too, the system of, of criminal justice preys on the poor because you can muscle the poor in ways that you can't do to the rich. Mm. And of course, the poor don't have access to the same legal defense Correct. typically as people with money or as the state does or the labs or right. any of the other access that the state has. Dan Rizzo was the prosecutor in this case, Oof. and the film uncovers his having committed an egregious Brady violation Yes, in withholding records that prove that Brown did make that phone call that was his alibi for the murder and that prove that he did it no, that he did it knowingly, that he had an email saying, I was hoping it would say this, but it didn't. This case is the definition of a Brady violation in which a prosecutor violated a legal duty, constitutional duty, to turn over documents that are helpful to the defense. So Brady violations are another thing that I think those of us interested in wrongful convictions have learned a lot about in the last couple of years. But this was a bad one. Well, it was a bad one because, I mean, not only, I mean, when you have evidence that shows that the alleged perp, the person that you want to send to, to, to prison or, or to send to die, is innocent, and you withhold that information, I mean, where are you going then? Is that for the notch on the belt? How do you live with yourself at night and accept that you, you sort of convince yourself that he's probably a bad guy and, 
I mean, he's he's done other bad things, so it's okay. I mean, how how do you wrap your head around that? That you hide that evidence, knowing that it would be proof that he would be innocent. It, it really is chilling, and yet he's completely unrepentant. And the police union is is outraged that Dwayne Brown is has been exonerated and declared innocent. Right. Um, that's another thing about the the justice system that I find disquieting and something that I learned in terms of making this series, this terrifying certainty, you know, this need to feel certain so that you're unwilling to ever check yourself to, you know, imagine if we all behave that way so that if, if we learned that something we said or did was wrong or inaccurate or untruthful, and then we just refuse to admit it, you know, what kind of world would that be? But that's the world too often of the criminal justice system where there's no willingness or no mechanism for reconsideration or doubt. And there's no incentive for people to accept that they were wrong. Right. I mean, it's so interesting to watch in, in that case when they decided to you know, declare him legally innocent, that the preamble to that press conference had to be, a lot of people aren't going to like this. You're not going to want to hear this, but blah, 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 blah. It's like, he didn't do it. He just didn't. Well, not only did he did he not do it, that's A number one. But the other thing is that means that the person who did do it is still out there or mm. in some other part of the prison system. But, you know, you'd like to think, and that was a moment when Larry Krasner is talking in, in the film on Chester Holman. He says, yeah, we'd like to think that we want to put the guilty people in jail and let the innocent people go free. And you also don't want the innocent person to stay in jail because that ain't right. I mean, duh. Mm, exactly. You know? you, and because, because you don't want innocent people in prison because that means the guilty are out there continuing to commit crimes. Right, right. Speaking of innocence, though, he still hasn't gotten compensation from the state of Texas, even though there was a period of time where they thought he was going to get compensation, right? Right. And that, I think, is a huge injustice. So uh, if you're listening in Texas, uh, raise a ruckus because this man deserves compensation for what he went through, you know, at the hands of, uh, of the state. Well, moving on to episode nine of The Innocence Files, the case of Ken Wynemko, who, by the way, does not look a lot like Phil Collins. He just doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree with that. Detective Olsen asked me, who I thought the composite looks like. I told him, I think it looks like Phil Collins. In one of the lighter moments of this entire series, um, he is arrested for allegedly raping and robbing a woman in Michigan, and he is immediately harassed by the prosecutor who calls him the million dollar man, sort of saying to him, like, you're not going to be able to fight this. How is that for a setup at the very beginning of a case? Right. I mean, again, it just testifies to the the need for that certainty, that the idea of they have a narrative and they're going to push that narrative no matter what the cost. Like I say, again, in, in the case of Ken Wynemko, it's another way of, of getting at something, which is they decided he was a bad guy. They had evidence from his girlfriend that maybe he was a bad guy. And so they push the bad guy narrative and they hammer at it until they send him down. Linda Davis is the prosecutor that you focus on in this episode, and she doesn't really seem to have a strong sense of how cases should work in terms of how they're actually investigated and worked. She also didn't have much of a sense of, of regret 
about mm. what had happened. She seemed perfectly sanguine about what happened to poor Ken Wynemko. That also was something I, I, I have a hard time understanding. I have a hard time understanding that, too. As the documentary progresses and the Innocence Project gets involved, and there are all these opportunities to test items for DNA, and I guess it was that deposition footage of her talking about what she did and didn't do in yes. this case. It was in a report that there was a semen found on a pair of underwear. Um, I didn't question it. I, I made an assumption that it was Mr. Wynemko's, and it was explained to me by... Uh, Tom Austin, that uh, the victim had had an affair earlier that night, that she had never had that pair of underwear on uh, after it was initially taken off of her by Mr. Wynemko, and that it could not have possibly been his semen. So I did not send it for testing. I would have otherwise. Is that true? Do you think, I mean, I'm curious, what's your opinion? You didn't direct this portion of the documentary. No, no, it was directed by Sarah Dowland, who did a lovely so, job. Yeah, I, it's hard to know. In that moment, is she lying? Is she remembering things in a way that are... It doesn't make her look particularly good. It either makes her look incompetent or a little bit like a liar. But but she doesn't seem to, to pause too much. She just rolls right into it. Same thing with the detective. You know, it's interesting. The part of this, this episode that I think... I mean, I'm glad that it made me uncomfortable. I think it should. Is that one of the pieces of evidence that you know Linda kind of kind of brings into the into focus is having Ken's ex girlfriend accuse him of being a rapist because you know some of his sexual proclivities line up allegedly with details of the crime, and there is some discomfort there. The idea that they would lean on that, lean on the idea of having a, a woman falsely accuse a guy of, of being a rapist. And that's uncomfortable to watch as a viewer. And I'm wondering if that was uncomfortable to make, you know, as a documentarian, how that was sort of dealt with. Well, I think it was. And, and I think it was also, a, you know, a question that Sarah had to reckon with a lot, too, was to what extent do you include some of the details, either of his past behavior or the details of the rape itself, which to some extent you really had to in order to be able to get at the facts of the matter. But again, this is part of building a narrative. You want to build the narrative of Ken Wynemko as a kind of a pervert who could commit this kind of an act. Why do you think it was important to go to such different parts of the country to tell these three stories? I mean, well, this is your block of episodes. That's a really good and, question. We debated yeah. that a lot. And, and you know, we've got Philly, we've got Houston, we've got Detroit. I think the idea here, not only for prosecutorial misconduct, but also for the other episodes was to convey a sense that there was a systematic problem here, that these are individual cases and each one of these individual cases has its own intrigue, its own drama, its own logic, its own set of characters. But put together, it seems to be pervasive throughout the country. And it can happen to a white guy from Michigan or a black guy from Houston or it's part of a, a Philadelphia police force that's just, a, after all, a, a few miles from University of Pennsylvania and Ivy League College. So it could happen anywhere. And it was that systemic quality that I think was so important to this whole series, but also in terms of spreading it around geographically. This is an all-American problem. One of the things that I feel like gets under-told in these stories that are unrepresented is the, the trauma 
experienced by the wrongfully convicted. You have three men in these three episodes, Ken, Chester, and Dwayne, who, if you were to meet them today and didn't know anything that happened, you can sort of look at their lives and say, they seem okay. But we know that they're not, right? We know they're not. I mean, I, I know that the Chester's doing the best he can, having just got out, but it's a hard road back, 24 years in prison. And it's one of the reasons that in the case of the the Holman film, we started that film with shots of the prison and only hearing his disembodied voice from inside of uh, the cell block, um, that he's less than a human being. You can't even see him or touch him or or reckon with him. And the prison recording will interrupt your phone call at every 15 minute interval in order to remind you that you're being listened to. The poignant stories of these in this case, these three men, you know, trying to maintain a sense of decency and humanity in the face of such brutality is impressive. And it's a testament to the human spirit. One of the big themes of your episodes is the lack of accountability for prosecutors in these wrongful convictions. Is there anything that can happen to change that? Or is this something that is just unfixable? I don't think it's unfixable. I think there are statutory fixes. I, I think, you know, states have to be willing to enact laws that allow you to hold prosecutors to account, uh, that allow you to, dis, to to have them disbarred or even literally charged with crimes and sent to sent to jail. There's also the, the question of whether or not the federal government could play a stronger role of examining some of these bad prosecutors and uh, filing federal charges against them. So in a way, I think, you know, part of the solution is technical, but part of the solution is uh, has to do with popular will. And that's where I hope these films can play a role, is let people know, look, you know, it's important, of course, that we prosecute crimes and we hold uh, the guilty to account and we take people who are dangerous to us off the streets. Um, but at the same time, it's also important we get that right. And if people just for the sake of their own reputations or a misguided sense of the end justifies the means are methodically putting innocent people in prison, they need to be held to account. Well, Alex Gibney, I do think that people who watch these three episodes of The Innocence Files that are your block of this project will come away with that. And I can't thank you enough for talking to me about it. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. A great pleasure. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to Alex Gibney. And remember, if you want to hear more of my thoughts on The Innocence Files, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. You can find this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and thanks for listening. <laughs>